In this series of podcasts, we discuss the transforming work of God, who is uncreated being, upon our souls as limited, created being. We discover how His Word reveals the truth of the union of His Spirit with our spirit through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. This transformation of our lives is not just about a change from bad to good. It's about a shift from natural to spiritual, from old creation to new creation. Well, here I am today again with Paul O'Sullivan, and we're going to talk about the 10th commandment. This is actually the last commandment, isn't it, Paul? There are only 10, aren't there? You're spot on, Scott. Yes, good to be with you again today. This commandment's written in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, and it says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Now, Paul, I feel pretty safe personally on a number of these fronts. I, I don't remember coveting anybody's manservant or maidservant or ox or donkey, but I might be in trouble on that last catch-all phrase, uh, which says, nor anything that is your neighbour's. Pretty global, isn't it? A very, very comprehensive uh, catch-all statement at the end there, which sweeps up anything that uh, might be left over. But we've got, look, a whole industry globally is built up on the basis of coveting, isn't it? Like from memory, the um, global advertising industry spend is about $560 billion a year, which is larger than the GDP of Sweden. Um, that's a massive industry. So if, if coveting is desiring what other people have, doesn't that mean that the whole advertising industry is enticing people to actually break this commandment? Mm, I didn't know those numbers. They're big. I believe advertising is based upon encouraging free enterprise, uh, free trade, offering somebody something that they may need and didn't know it was around. And if it's a good product that's well advertised, it will trade well, be appreciated, because it does what it says it does. On the other hand, you can get a bad product that's advertised and that can be deceptive. But even these days, we have these structures in place that evaluate advertising, the rules against false advertising and so on. And those, so those things will probably fail if it's a, an efficient free market system with those checks and balances. Advertising can be badly used mischievously but it can also be very helpful to be able to uh, encourage people to make good products and to help people to find the things that they do need in an open market society. Look, the fact that you've spoken about that brings up the whole point of covetousness, which may seem tame compared to the gravity of most of the other commandments. Like, what's the problem? Mm. If that's been advertised and I want it, well, you shouldn't want that. <laughs> that's coveting. Because we all want to have some things that other people have. But really, when we get to the heart of this commandment, it's not just the desire to have something. It's the nature of the desire and the harmful emotion that can fuel it. Like a resentment. You've got that. I resent you. And I, my life is nothing unless I can get what you've got. That's a resentful attitude. And that's where this commandment comes in. The very word covet sounds 
like it's the wrong thing to do. But when you look at the Greek word in the New Testament, which is epithemio, which means to set your heart upon something, means to latch on, to set your heart on something, that word covet is very often translated as desire and also just as often translated as lust. So you've got coveting, desiring and lusting, all using that word epithemio to set your heart upon it. Depending on the translation you're reading and on the context or the person who is interpreting this particular text, what you find can be quite misleading or confusing. You say, wow, we just read a scripture there that to covet this is a good thing. Because Paul says, well, covet to prophesy, you know, look for this gift that's good for you. And also in Galatians, Paul says, the spirit lusts against the flesh. You think, what? Mm. What's going on here? It's just the spirit has set his heart, the Holy Spirit has set his heart upon overcoming the flesh in you, set your heart upon, epithemia, mm. to have a strong desire. So whatever the context of that strong desire is, drives what the meaning of the word is. But unfortunately, in our English language, we could be saying lust, desire, or covet. Really, this command is talking about, if we use the word desire, it's having the right desire. Yeah. That's it. it. And so if the, the, a wrong desire could be coveting, yeah. but a right desire would not be coveting. Exactly. But you might read in the Bible that it's good to covet this thing or covet that. And you think, well, why are they saying covet this? Because that will be good for you. Mm. Uh, in fact, there's a scripture in Timothy where Paul writes to Timothy about appointing elders in the church. And he said, it is good uh, to covet the office of an elder. <laughs> you think, no, that can't be right. It just means it's good if you can set your heart upon doing this and take the responsibility of it. So you really do have to look at the context. But there's, there's one excellent scripture really in 1 Timothy 6 that sums up a little bit about these desires. It's in verse 9 and it says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a trap, it says a sneer in the King James, into many unwise and harmful desires. And that's the word coveting, epithemia, harmful epithemia. Mm. Why? Because there's a desire to be rich. It says uh, that harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Not money itself. But this harmful desire which drives a person is a root of all kinds of evils. And then it goes on. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced their souls with much grief. So what you've got in that scripture is watch out. There are things that can entice you into having a harmful desire if it becomes excessive and resentful because you want what somebody else has got but it can also cause you to wander away from faith and bring destruction to yourself through grief, a sense of loss and discontentment. So there's a lot in that one scripture that is telling us as we do this particular commandment today, how destructive coveting is, not just for people who are being having their stuff coveted, 
but the person that's doing it ends up causing themselves distress and grief, mm. which is interesting. Well, Paul, in each of the episodes, we've talked about the linkage between the commandments. And for people listening, they can click on a link in the episode notes where they can download a free chart, which explains this linkage between them. Yeah. So we're at commandment 10 now, which is don't covet. Commandment 9 says, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. And then we've got commandment 1 on the other side of commandment 10, because it's a cycle, right? right. So it's not just a list, it's a cycle. I am the Lord your God, have no other gods before me. So can you talk about this linkage between commandments 9, 10 and 1? Yes. It's interesting. I'm glad you mentioned the cycle. In fact, I'll probably better if I leave the link to commandment 1 from commandment 10. I'd like to leave that for a couple of reasons because this is the last one of the commandments and I can come from commandment 9 to this, but because of that cycle, you end up colliding with commandment number 1. And that is different to coming from, say, commandment 8 to number 9. You come to 8 to number 9, and you're still progressing through a process of being transformed. When you come from commandment 10, you've come to the end of something that's quite a destructive thing for a person's soul to be a covetous person and they collide with commandment number one because it's the end of the line and commandment number one is i am the lord your god and so that collision is profoundly life-changing and it could be the best possible thing so we'll talk about that towards the end maybe okay but as far as commandment nine the last commandment we saw that was about bearing false witness which was being untruthful in the sense that you're failing to use communication in a good and creative and purposeful way. Uh, You're using your version of the truth to destroy somebody, even if what you're saying about them could have truth in it. The purpose that you're using, what you're saying, is a communication that's destructive. That's bearing false witness. And so the bearing of false witness can destroy the reputation, the character, and the very being of someone else's life. Their worth gets destroyed in the eyes of others, and sometimes they get under so much shame that they can't get through it themselves. You know, that's bearing false witness. So that's violating the truth of the worth of another person destructively. Then the person that's doing it, the one bearing false witness, the liar, ends up becoming deceived because that's the consequence of living in the mode of of untruth, of destructive communication. They end up becoming deceived and they never have to change anything because they can tell another lie. It wasn't my fault. They did it. They bear false witness. They end up bearing false witness about themselves. They end up losing who they really are. Their compass is gone because they're living in deception. And they can only get out of their true selves, which is, who am I? They can't work out who they are because they've lied about others and become a lie themselves. The only way they can somehow find some sort of identity is having a fantasy of what somebody else has got or who somebody else is. I want that because there's nothing left for them. They've become a victim of their own deceitfulness by living a lie. 
they're looking for someone else or other people's things for a source of their who they are and their identity and their sense of contentment because they're discontent. That's a resentful desire to have what other people have. And the resentful emotion behind this is the lie that says what you've got and who you are is not enough. And in order to have anything at all, you've got to have what other people have. That is a lie about the reality of who you are your worth, your value, your being. So you can't go into covetousness as being the answer and taking somebody else's life. The answer, of course, is being able to accept who you are and what you have and beginning to live with the realistic hopes and expectations of contentment. And I'm coming to the end. I'm just saying this is the answer. But you can see here it is. You're at the very end of the commandments. You can go one way or the other. You can become totally lost to who you are. Or you can say, I'm going to aim for the right life and set the right goals. And I'm not going to destroy myself by setting goals that are really for someone else. Okay. We go right back to Genesis when Lucifer tempted Adam and Eve to covet something that wasn't theirs to have. That would have been one of the first instances, wouldn't it, of, of coveting? Yeah, that was it. He was the first one to covet. And he again went into that little cycle that I was just talking about. He resentfully felt deprived of what he believed was a right for him to have for himself. I mean, as if he didn't have enough. He was an anointed angel. He had a prominent and admired status in heaven. He was actually called the anointed guardian cherub. Everything was going for him, but it wasn't enough. Well, what was enough? Well, he looks around, he sees God, he sees the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. I mean, this is a spirit world. This is before we were even created. But then when creation did happen, then there's more for him to get upset about and resent because all of a sudden he says, oh, God's going to have another bunch of people around here and he seems to be really enamored of them. So there's a scripture about God's disappointment with him and calls him out on it. And it's in Isaiah chapter 28. It's actually giving us a picture of Lucifer. And it says, you were an anointed guardian cherub. God's speaking to him. And he says, I placed you on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire. That's the angels. You walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. Here you've got Satan's problem. Here actually you've got the template for Every facet of sin, this is what sin is all about. He had pride, then he had rebellion, and then he got deception. Every sin that you can think of will come from one of them. Mm. It starts basically with pride because that's your independence. So he looked at himself and thought, I'm pretty good, I deserve a lot. So the next thing that came was rebellion, I'm going to buck the system. And that's what happens with covetousness. I'm not getting what I deserve. That's a lie. And that leads to deception. That then becomes a deceived heart. I'm being ripped off. I, I should be getting more. Well, it also says there that you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. So this corrupted heart, this deceived lie 
goes hand in hand with corrupting wisdom as well. Exactly, yeah. Well, his wisdom would have then come from hell. Mm. <laughs> and James speaks about there's a wisdom from above and a wisdom that's earthy. It's just like this. It's covetous and it wants to destroy. Yes, you're right. That's what got corrupted. So he became the lie. And he, the first person to bear false witness against himself. See, he could have been what he was created to be. And there's your ninth commandment. This is that cycle. And every, every layer that we go into here will help us to understand more and resolve what this covetous cycle is from commandment nine to commandment 10 about false witness and then to commandment one, facing the truth. So he bears false witness against himself to destructively live out the lie in his own being forever. Now, I reckon that there was, and I'll just submit this to you, there would have been a lot going on in heaven when all of this happened. This is headlines. This is sensational stuff. It would have been open news because this was a spirit world and there was communication and he was a, a chief angel, the, the guardian cherub, and Father God would have, having conceived this beautiful thought of having a family in the earth of humans speaking to Jesus and the Holy Spirit because he said, let us make man in our own image. So there's a conversation and Lucifer's going, what? I just heard something a bit strange. Let us make man in our own image. And so Adam and Eve were going to be the first kids. Humans, beings of a lower rank than Lucifer, and that incensed Lucifer because they were going to get a father-to-son inheritance of everything that God was and had. And Lucifer was saying, why not me? I'm being bypassed. Now, there is the root of resentment in being coveting. But the greatest insult of all and this is where you get this incredible mystery of Jesus in the Trinity. Okay, we're talking about Adam and Eve and an inheritance. I'm going to have a family. And the incredible mystery is that God already had a son, Jesus, anyway. So how were these puny humans going to get into the act at all and be set up for an inheritance from God? Like all he had and owned and was, he's going to give to human beings. And that says that in Corinthians, all things are yours, all things are of God, and all things are yours. Paul says that. That's pretty rich. But the inheritance for Jesus was to rule the kingdom of heaven on earth. And there's lots of scriptures about that. But there's also scriptures about us who are in Christ being destined to rule with him. That's pretty unbelievable, mm, isn't it? Absolutely. But you've got to believe it because it says it in 2 Timothy chapter 2. It says it in Revelation 1. It just speaks about ruling and reigning with Christ. Mm. So the answer to this extraordinary mystery was that <laughs> this is where Lucifer was fooled, really, and also energized with more hatred and resentment. Jesus himself was actually destined and willing to become one of these puny humans and win for all humanity that glorious father-son inheritance that Jesus was already enjoying as an uncreated being. You know, Jesus, at this point, his uncreated being is in heaven, but the news is out, let us make man in our own image. But Jesus is the, the eternal son from before the beginning of the world, the lamb slain before the beginning of the world, he's already enjoying that inheritance and that destiny as an uncreated being happily along with Holy Spirit in heaven. 
What you've got here is Lucifer coveting God's place of power and glory, feeling he deserved to have the inheritance that was due to God's son, Jesus, an inheritance which now Jesus shares willingly with us, which is why Satan hates us so much. And there's a scripture that demonstrates the determination of Lucifer to follow through with his plan of revolution. And here's his rebellion. And somehow he must have persuaded a whole host of other angels. The Bible says a third of the angels went with him. So there's a bit of advertising. You know, you too can have this promise. That's false advertising, right? That they would get their fair share of the new order of things. But what he got, in fact, was destruction and a final judgment being cast down to hell. So it says in the scripture in Ezekiel chapter 28, 14, about Lucifer's place. And God speaks to him and tells him how great he was and says, You are an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. They're the angels. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. What we've got is... Another scripture here in in Isaiah 14 about Lucifer having fallen from heaven. It speaks about him. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations, that is humanity, all the people. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol or down to hell to the lowest depths of the pit. There are five I wills there, which are rebellious proclamations of what he coveted, what he wanted. But it's interesting, all of those things were not for him. They were actually for us through Jesus. I won't go through them all, but just look at a couple of them. I will ascend into heaven and exalt my throne above the stars of God. That's what Jesus did. And the thing is, we've been raised together with him, seated at the right hand of the Father. That's inheritance. See, what Lucifer wanted to destroy was the inheritance. Because he wanted it. He wanted it. He wanted to inherit. Inheritance is a good thing because it is a loving father wanting to bless his children. And what father doesn't want to do that? That's why God likes to protect the concept, the value, the virtue of a godly inheritance speaks about it in the scriptures. But that being above the stars of heaven, well, that's it. You know, we will, the Bible says we will judge angels. And also one of those sentences in that verse is, I will be like the most high. Well, in fact, in 1 John 3, 2, it says, it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when we see him, we will be like him. So we will be like Jesus. In other words, we will have a resurrection body, etc. These were the things that Lucifer coveted and still doesn't want us to have. 
So he knew what the story was. It was that eternal plan that would have been spoken of in heaven. It is spoken of too in the scriptures in Ephesians about God adopting a human family and says you've been adopted, destined to be adopted in the beloved. Adoption, you think, well, how does that work? The word adoption simply means placement. That's how it was used right throughout history. Adoption was placement of a child in the family. And that person who was placed in the family inherited what was in the family. And so we've been adopted, and that is placed in Christ to inherit what Jesus inherits. First of all, Jesus inherits. He had that place, and then we have our placement in him. This is too much pain for Lucifer. Us seated together with Jesus on the throne, which it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6 as well. So Lucifer targeted and tempted Adam and Eve because they were the puny humans that were set up for all of this. And so what he used was covetousness. The I want more, sin. So he says to Adam and Eve, uh, you're, you're being ripped off here. God doesn't want you to eat of that tree because he knows when you do that, you're going to be like God. You'll be as God. Here's one of those big lies. And you'll become wise because you will know good and evil. So there you've got Adam and Eve being tempted by covetousness. The first sin, and it had to do with an inheritance, seeking to be destroyed. He's still trying to do it. And then, not only Adam and Eve, but then you've got Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's firstborn two sons. Well, Cain the firstborn, and then Abel the secondborn, now, Cain, the firstborn, would have had an inheritance. Now, he should have been quite happy about this and appreciated and accepted the reality of his own life, number one son. He could have inherited whatever good thing there was for him if he would have got his heart right. But you know what he did? He coveted what his younger brother had. And that was foolish. That's this unwise desire. And what did Abel get? Abel got a beautiful smile of approval from God, because he said, I approve of your offering. He didn't approve of Cain's. And you can say, well, was that because one was a blood sacrifice and one wasn't? But if you just look down a couple of layers, you'll see it was the attitude that God couldn't accept. A covetous attitude of not wanting to please the Father, wanting to please himself, and wanting to have that approval that Abel was getting something in his heart brought about a resentment to the way Abel lived his life. And it says that in the book of James. The reason that Cain killed Abel was that Abel's works were righteous and Cain's were not. So there you've got destruction again, covetousness, coveting his righteousness. How about that? Mm. So he became an empty shell of a person, Cain. He wandered off saying, my punishment is more than I can bear. So you see the, the fruit of covetousness, mm. the emptiness. Who am I? Mm. Where do I go? There's also the, the story of Joseph and his coat of many colours. And his brothers coveted the favour that he got from his father. So you, there again, you've got this inheritance thing. And the Bible's full of this. And so is life in the world around us. So... The nature of the destructive power revolves around not honouring this virtue of an ordered inheritance of blessing that can flow throughout all of humanity. We're here to bless one another and pass it on. The urge to destroy the virtue of a good inheritance plays a huge part in this commandment. 
in, in Proverbs, it says a good man leaves, Proverbs 13, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. That's just called a patriarchal blessing. People don't like to hear the word patriarchal these days, but there it is. It's They're a good thing. Very politically incorrect today, That's right. Talking about today and society today, is there a resentful kind of coveting in the attitude of society where some people think that the world owes them a living? And what about justice in the distribution of wealth or the injustice in the distribution of wealth? And there are even whole political philosophies around this. Marxism is a good example where the message here seems to be a good kind of coveting where we redistribute wealth for greedy, wealthy people to people in need. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, actually, I think that's the best example to bring up. It's an ideology. It became a failed system because I believe it's rooted in covetousness again because there's a a resentful thing happening here and it was embraced because it appeared to be based on an unselfish motive of the just and equal redistribution of wealth. That sounds fair. Why not just have everybody equal? But who's going to organise this? It ended up that the state has to become then the sovereign benefactor and the custodian of all property. So Marxism and today's world, neo-Marxism, very humbly ordains the state in the place of God as the possessor of heaven and earth. God is the possessor of heaven and earth. And he gives people abilities and talents. It says it is God that causes us to get wealth. In other words, He will give people giftings to be able to do well and to become people that are able to bless others through this. But when you place the state in the place of God, then the state has this kind of morality. It's now bound to ensure that there's no personal freedom to acquire wealth and no personal inheritance, by the way. Inheritance is the first thing that goes because the state owns it. Mm. The state's not going to give it to to some family here and some family there. Within their bureaucracy, they'll organise their own little hierarchy of greed. So this kind of neo-Marxist thing virtuously pretends to aim at removing the greed motive and the misuse of the privilege of birthright, status or special ability that can advantage an individual. And so people with this ideology assume that those who have got privilege by merit or inheritance will most certainly deprive and oppress others. You know, that's what they'll do. They've been judged already. So they decide that the state should have control over everything. But as I said, history has proven that that experiment with our individual resources has failed because the real motive is not unselfish at all, but it's deep down at its worst, it's a covetous reaction to what the wealthy have. Now, there can also be, and there are many in society that want there to be a more equal distribution of privilege and so on, and and that can come out of true compassion. But there are ways to do that without having to have a Marxist society, because you can see that sometimes the wealthy do seem to act greedily. Many of the people that are wealthy have misused their amassed wealth to their selfish advantage. If you replace within a structure that can deal with that, like that can be dealt with with proper regulation and so on, that kind of an injustice of greed can't be justified by a greater injustice. 
that leads to a greater destruction, which is the state takes over. I remember when I was in, in Russia, in St. Petersburg, back in the 90s, in the late 90s, and I just saw how, as people related to me, because I asked them, how do things work around here? You know, with your salary and your wages. And they were talking about the communist revolution when it started and then how they've been coming out of that because of Glasnost, Perestroika and the, the Berlin Wall coming down and so on. And they had a little joke and it said, yes, we had a rule with how we got paid and it was we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us. <laughs> But you look at the Marxist system and what they had great problems with when communism first started after the revolution was who works out what something is worth? What's the cost of a thing? Because a cost in the free marketplace, in free enterprise, is based on functionality, quality, availability, the cost of the materials and labour and the design and the appearance and the presentation and, and the advertising. And who made it? Who was the creator, the design genius? That did all that affect the costing, which individuals have to do. And other people assess that and say, yeah, we'll peg that at that price. But in communism, the unbelievable bureaucratic confusion that arose was that they had to set the price of everything without any regard to what the labourer was worth, whether it had a good design, how functional it was. There was no competition. Everything just had this standard thing and it was there. But what do we charge for it? They spent years, the volumes of paperwork, trying to work out costing. That's internally. Externally, in the international market, they had to abide by the, the competitive rules of all of the other stuff with their military and their hardware and things like that. The reality is that the Western political state can regulate the crimes of greed and corruption. It can regulate it, it does. It has a law and order system and there are penalties and there's state control and management, uh, false advertising and so on. Western democracies do give to the state an enormous amount of control and management of a lot of property and other common natural resources anyway, which allows for both things to happen. You've got bureaucracy, but it's under supervision. Individuals have the freedom of opportunity, personal wealth management, inheritance. The big thing that saves us from getting bogged down with everybody becoming totally covetous and having to have another revolution is that we have an election every few years so that the political parties who end up finding that it's all being too difficult to solve all the problems that we've got, they run out of competency or favour managing all the resources that we all own. We just vote them out and we give the other bunch a go. And in, in the end, nobody gets it completely right for the same reasons that humans don't ever always get everything right. But you see, there's the difference. Mm. Well, in Marxist thinking, some people might feel justified in coveting because of the injustice of greed. So it looks like we have the sin of coveting on one side and the sin of greed on the other. So how do we make sense of this? Well, simply, I'd say you can't answer the sin of greed with the sin of coveting. Yeah. The answer to the greed that capitalism can display, and it does display in many cases by the amassing of wealth for power by a greedy and powerful few people, the answer to that is not destroying that through coveting and thinking that we can create some new utopia 
where the state will take everything from the greedy and share it with the needy. There aren't enough good people <laughs> like that around. The same hearts will be doing the same things. The biblical response has to do with the Eighth Commandment. You don't answer the sin of greed with the sin of coveting. You answer it with the Eighth Commandment, do not steal. The way that the New Testament then presents that commandment, let him that stole steal no longer, but rather let him work with his hands that which is good, being productive that he may have and better themselves financially so that they may give to those who are in need. But that comes from a person who's got the freedom to be able to enjoy what their ability has won for them or what they may have inherited as a kickstart. Who knows? But they're able to build on something and they do have the ability to develop a good conscience to attend to the needs of underprivileged and disadvantaged. That's the way that you can set a system up to work with imperfect people and you won't get perfect results. So like everything else in life, it comes down to the responsibility of a good conscience towards God and others and a gratitude for his blessing upon our lives. And that means a godly response of faith in a living God. It has to come right back to square one mm. to cut the root of this tree of covetousness, of destroying inheritance, destroying the freedom and abilities of people to prosper and then to be giving in faith because of a, a loving God that wants us to share what he's got. So, yeah, God's got the answer there. <laughs> mm. Well, can we talk about the Apostle Paul? And the reason I want to do that is because I think he had a personal revelation around coveting, didn't he? And yeah. he spoke about that in Romans chapter 7. He talked about coveting as being the sin that made him realise how the commandments had made him aware of his own sinfulness, which I thought was very interesting. Was this a special kind of problem that Paul himself had? Or is it a generalisation that can be applied more broadly? And can you also talk more about how the commandment came alive to him and then killed him? Yeah, because that's what it says in the scripture in mm. Romans 7. That's right. He said, um, the commandment revived and I died. Yeah. But I believe it was a, a special kind of a problem that Paul had because he speaks very personally. But I also think it's, it's a generalisation in the sense that he is talking about sin generally, how it comes alive to you when you understand that you have sinned. But sin is deceptive. You think you're getting along doing fine and you think that you can covet this and you, you can have that because you'd be better off. But you're deceived because you're not realising who you were created to be and what you were created to have and what you were purposed to do with that. We're blind to so much of this. And I think we get we more blind if society and people around us accept it as being a legitimate desire. Yeah, it's a way to get on, isn't that's it? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but but I, I, I'm going to submit this to you because I'm still exploring this because I'm looking at not just this as a scripture that talks about Paul all of a sudden realised that covetousness is a sin. Let me read the scripture anyway. It says that one time I lived without the understanding of, of the commandment and the sin was dead to me. Then I fully realised the command not to covet and the power of sin came to life. Now, a lot of people think 
Now that must have been when he was a teenager. You know, he liked to have what the other fella down the road have or whatever. And then he grew up and thought, oh, you can't do this anymore. Now, I believe this was a real life experience in Paul coming from Saul, the persecutor of Christians, into Paul, the apostle, the messenger of God to the Gentiles. Yeah. Now, I'll, I'll unpack this a bit. And I'm still discovering getting down, digging around this tree down to the roots. So I'll present it to you, um, not dogmatically, but I believe, or it's my thought, <laughs> that my suggestion that it was on the road to Damascus when the commandment of covetousness became the living word of God to Paul from Jesus. I believe that's when the commandment came alive and killed him. <laughs> Killed Saul and allowed Paul to live. Killed the old man. Killed the old man and brings the new one. Because Jesus spoke to him, and, and I believe that he heard that commandment in the spirit of life, not just in the letter. He writes in Romans chapter 7, I'll cut in round about verse 7, Sin used this command, that is, thou shalt not covet, to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there were no commandment, sin would not have had that power. And then he goes further to say, at one time I lived without understanding the commandment and the sin was dead. In other words, that sin wasn't alive in him. He was blind to it, like you just said, you know, like everybody's doing it, right? But when I fully realised the command not to cover, the power of sin came to life and I died. I think he's talking about Saul dying there. Mm -hmm. But still, he goes on to say, the law itself is holy and its commands are holy and right and good. He's saying further on in there, how can a thing that's good bring death to me? But what it was doing was bringing death to the old man that had to die. If you don't obey the command, if you know it, it will bring another kind of death. If you willingly knowing and understanding the commandment, sin against it, there's another kind of dying of your relationship with God, mm. a separation. He was living in that kind of wilderness. So what, what we're saying is it allowed him to accurately see the sin that was there that he yeah. couldn't see before. He couldn't see it and then And then once he saw it, then he could deal with it through yes. repentance. Yeah, that's right. That same chapter, chapter 7 and verse 7, in the Message Bible, it's quite clear. It says, apart from the succinct surgical command, you shall not covet, I could have dressed covetousness up to look like a virtue and ruined my life with it. Mm. Well, what was he coveting? Now, here's where I'll unpack my idea. Because what Jesus said to Paul was, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul had despised Christians. He was like a terrorist. He was from Damascus, so he was a Syrian terrorist, right? And he was maliciously persecuting Christians. And on this trip, he was on his way back to Damascus. He used to throw Christians into jail, killing them. And he'd only just finished his last assignment of killing Christians by being there when Stephen the martyr was stoned to death. Paul was part of that assassination, that killing, the martyrdom of Stephen. 
and that was by his Pharisee colleagues. Now, this is where I believe Paul had a covetous thing happening. Paul says, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I believe Paul always desired, and it's a desire, and a desire can be good, a desire can be bad. Same word, epithumio, in the New Testament. He had a desire to be the best of the best. Now you think, well, that's okay. And it's interesting. Well, particularly if your desire is to be the best Pharisee. Okay, that's it. And, and that was, he thought, well, God's going to love this. So it's interesting that in that um, modern day version, it said, I could have dressed covetous up to look like a virtue and ruin my life. So he probably felt virtuous by coveting to be the best of the best. And he probably, well, he says he was. Mm. So he probably had was cruising here. Yeah, he probably achieved that. <laughs> he'd achieved it and he'd shown it. Look, I've got more deaths. I've got a bigger tally than you. I've put more into jail. This is, and now I'm going to Damascus and we're going to round up a few more. He was perceiving what he thought was God's best. But then he watches Stephen, who is undoubtedly at that moment in time, the best of the best. He could see that himself. He could see it. There was pure righteousness, a living testimony of God's man of the hour. And somehow Paul hated and resented Stephen for that and was there to kill him. Remember we talked about Cain and Abel? Mm. Cain killed Abel. That was an inheritance thing. He wanted the favour from the dad. But also, remember I spoke about in James, it says, and why did Cain kill Abel? Because Abel's works were righteous and Cain's were not. Mm -hmm. So he coveted the righteousness mm. of Abel. The same thing Paul was same doing. Same thing Paul was doing. What do you think? Mm. I mean, it's possible. Yeah, because he was coveting to be the best Pharisee and that's where he thought the most righteousness yeah. would be. Yeah. But then he sees Stephen being stoned. Yeah. And he's holding somebody's coat from memory, wasn't he? He was holding Stephen's coat. Yeah, he was holding Stephen's coat. <laughs> That's right. That's and, right. And, and just in that moment, watching Stephen, he'd realised he'd been coveting something which wasn't going to get him to where he really should yeah. be. I mean, the Holy Spirit was there because it, Stephen says, the heavens, I see the heavens opened and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father saying to you people, why do you always resist the Holy Spirit? At a moment like that, I believe that the conscience of Paul was stabbed by the Holy Spirit. I believe there was a conviction, but I don't believe Paul properly could respond to it. I'm suggesting... Well, there's pride there too. Yeah, well, pride, yeah. Mm. And rebellion, because he's mm. killing off this man of righteousness mm. who speaks and says he's speaking from heaven. Then he hears Jesus saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Not only that, Jesus says to him, why are you always kicking against these stabs of conscience that I'm piercing your heart with by the Holy Spirit? They're the very words that Jesus is saying, you're getting stabbed, you're kicking against it. You are there, I know what's going on. Paul could have hardly been able to live with himself. He'd had this rage to destroy Christians to validate his zealous loyalty to the one true religion and then he gets confronted by the the living reality of the one true religion in the form of jesus the living word of god and he calls him lord and we see that jesus is bringing conviction 
And well, confirming the conscience. Confirming the Paul, conscience thing, yeah. So Paul's conscience had already been annoying him yeah. with these pricks. That's right. To yeah. say, you know, what are you doing? What are, what are, you, are you doing? doing? What are you yeah. doing? And he's rebelling yeah. against that all the way through. And then he sees Stephen being stoned. He's holding the coat and he's thinking, I've been coveting the wrong thing. My desire yeah. has been in the wrong place. And the fact that Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? In other words... If you persecuted Stephen, you were persecuting me. I'm the Lord. Man, talk about an aha moment mm. for Paul. I mean, that's, that's yeah, that's your, there's your conversion experience. I mean, that was the biggest one I think we've ever read about. But prior to this conviction, his desire to be the best of the best was a virtuous thing for him. His ego loved it. But when this commandment came alive, like when this commandment all of a sudden lived, it killed his sinful ego, his false, empty self. James puts it well when he talks about sin and desire. All the same word again, by the way, epithemia, means the same as covet, same as desire, and the same as lust. So we've got to put this in its right category. It's here talking about bad, bad desire, mm. right? James 1 verse 14 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And we're going to say that is covetousness, right? Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. That's the harmful desire. So first of all, the, the, the covetousness is a desire. Then it becomes an action. It sets its heart on that is epithemia, to set your heart upon something. That is to covet, to desire, and then it sets its hands upon it. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That death is the death of separation between God. It's the death of going into the wrong person, dead to God. Paul writes it, he says, you can be dead to sin and alive to God. And then the reverse is also the same dead to God and alive to sin. You know? mm. So that's the, that death is, is, is an isolation of the soul from God. There's nothing worse than that. And from what is good. So that kind of judgment and awareness of being exists in the conscience of every human being. We are able to pick that up in ourselves. I mean, I've had times when I've been convicted of just having a wrong attitude, saying things with the wrong tone and with an uncaring attitude. And there's an awareness there that I've done damage to the aliveness of my spirit. I'm just aware of it. It's like, I'm thinking, this isn't me. And I, I, it is me, you idiot. Mm. And it's like being smitten by the conscience. And it's a terrible feeling. Mm. The worst thing, with me anyway, the worst thing I feel when I get smitten like that, I think, oh, I've got to do something good to make up for this. <laughs> balance it out. I've got to balance it out. I better say something really nice. And I'm feeling, but this sounds fake. Yeah. And it's this oh, price. It's so hard. Like the old flesh, you can beat it to death and it just won't die sometimes. Mm. It's just, no, 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 let me look good. Just a little bit. Do something nice and you'll be okay then. Mm. And, and I'm thinking, oh, hang it. I'm just going to say, yeah, I'm wrong. Sorry, mm. Lord. I want to get back, you know, into the into the place where I feel at home and safe. I think we've all got that. I think everybody's got that, but you can you can sear it, you can cauterize it and burn it. Everybody's got feelings, everybody's got a conscience, and they know how lonely that homeless sense of loss can be, and it can be healed. Mm. 
Well, Paul, earlier on you avoided really getting into how this commandment relates to the next one, uh, which is commandment one, but I'm not going to let you get away with that this time. Can you drill into that for us? Okay, then. So when someone has come to the full realisation of their failure in this commandment, well, look, that little testimony I just gave, when I realised that I'd done something, and, and Paul was talking about covetousness and his sin, but as I also said, and you asked me the question, was this a generalisation? Well, yeah, all sin separates you from God, right? And when you come to a realisation of that, you come to the end of making any relational progress or growth in your life. You have to regroup and you have to see, I have to find God in this. And as we come through the commandments, we've seen the transformational nature. Oh, I have to surrender that so that I can now obey this next commandment and not get angry, like from commandment number five to commandment number six. I can now become a person who trusts other people. That's commandment number five. And now I can start to trust, and, and that was in authority. I can trust a person in authority who knows more than I do. So I've got something to learn here and I trust them to lead me and to, well, to guide me in their area of expertise at least. And instead of being rebellious and totally opposed to trusting anybody because I want to live my way and have what I want, we find ourselves in our lateral relationships with our peers, our friends and so on. If we haven't learned to trust somebody in authority, we get frustrated. We can't trust anybody. So we end up in a life of frustration because nobody's going to give us what we want and then we become angry. So we learn to come from commandment number five to learn to trust and that becomes our finding God. Yeah, I trust you, Lord. And that's our faith. So then we repent of our anger and, and the way we've been behaving with other people, getting angry at me and say, it's all right, I've learned. I realise where this is coming from. I'm aware, my conscience has told me, I'm in the light now, and you find God in it. When you get to commandment 10, there isn't another commandment about relationships with other people except God. And that's the full stop. So that's the last one of person-to-person -person relational commandments. You come to the full circle around to number one, I am the Lord your God. Now, if this can be realised, you can, by faith, receive grace from God and respond by saying yes to God. Now that is why the Bible says by grace you are saved through faith and that is not of yourself it is a gift of God and God's there bringing you to the point of repentance where you acknowledge that you're wrong and you've come to the end there's only God left and when you can be turned by the Holy Spirit around that and find that repentance, you then receive the grace to then have the faith to trust God. And that is an ever-growing cycle of growth. But this one is the big one because you've come to the end of covetousness and all that's left is God. And so there are people that can get to the very end and then leap into a revelation of the blessing of putting God first in their life. Commandment number one. Now, I believe that's happening while we're sitting here talking to people all over the, the planet. Mm. Paul, we've talked about the transformational nature of each of these commandments. Can you talk about where this commandment takes us from coveting to what in the New Testament? And can you back that up with some scripture? Yeah, it'd be nice to back that up with some scripture. Um, in the book of Philippians, Paul tells us about his breakthrough 
and it was learning to be content, which is like a, a containing himself, a discipline. In Philippians chapter 4, he says in verse 11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And that word content actually means to be guarded, safeguarded. It's like I'm safe. Whether it's here are all my little goodies and here everything is, it's all okay. I don't have to bust out and find another life, if you know what I mean. So he said, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content, safeguarded like a walled city, right? I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In other words, here's the person who's brought low and they may feel I've got a justice situation here. I'm going to protest. I'm going to demand equality because I've been brought low and left out and the rich are getting it, so I'm going to march, right? Let's create a utopia where I can now have equality. No, he says, I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In other words, oh, now I'm the rich man. So I can manage both mm -hmm. because I'm guarded. Mm -hmm. I, I've learned to be content. In any and every circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and facing hunger, abundance and need. And how does he do this? He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Mm. Well, that's often kind of, I would call it the superhero verse that a lot of Christians take that out of context to say that, you know, I can do all things in Christ and it becomes more about them but what this, in the context, this verse is actually talking about contentment, isn't it? That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's, that scripture is like, you hang it on your fridge. That's right. Anything I need to do, I can do it through Christ, you know. I can have that car. I can, mm. I can have the, the things I want, the job I want. I can do that through the Christ. The things that I desire. It's the things that I can use it in a way to, <laughs> to, to reverse the actual context that's of right. it to say, I covet this so I can get it. Through, through Christ, through Christ through but Christ. actually what it's saying is oh, man, you can oh, achieve man. contentment That's through, it. through Christ, Christ who yeah. strengthens in me. any situation. In any situation. Because he does say, when I'm weak, oh, that's when the power of Christ rests upon me. So it's a consciousness of that exchange life, isn't it? Okay, so here's where God makes available a revelation of his grace. Because it's the empowerment. It's not willpower. It's not, I'm going to grit my teeth and and be content with this rotten situation. I'll tolerate it. That's not, that is not being content. Content is a flow of grace from God where it's his power, a contentment that can be ours by accepting the godliness of our true self. This is me in this situation, and I'm here with God. My true self is here. You know, it's not the Saul, it's the Paul. Instead of an image that I'd constructed for my fulfilment, I could justify my covetous because I wanted to be that special soul. No, chuck that. I'm now the poor. I'm using poor soul because that came in handy, that experience of his. So the answer is taking hold of commandment one, which is always available, always the answer. And it's always being at home with God where things work out okay just as they should, because he runs the home and we're part of it. You know, I um, just thought of another little testimony, because I was thinking about when did I first feel covetousness, because I was thinking about Paul. He got it when he saw Stephen 
Mine wasn't that much of a spiritual awakening for me, but I remembered when I went back and thought of something that made me really feel deprived. When I was a kid, I went to school, I would have been about 11 or 12, and I had a few mates at school, and some of them lived in really nice homes, and we got to be great friends, and I was asked to come and do sleepovers and stay in the house and meet the family, and I'd usually end up sitting on the ping pong table and breaking it and all this sort of <laughs> stuff. But we didn't have a lot of stuff in our house that these people had. Because you'd broken it all. <laughs> <laughs> even broke somebody's sink, sat on the bathroom sink. But I saw the things that people had, my friends had in their home. And I just felt, why haven't I got that? We don't have this sort of stuff at home. And it really got to me. I was there for two or three days. And then I had to leave, and on the way home I'm thinking, gee, I wish we had some of that nice stuff, like a billiard table as well, and the Butte gramophone and the stereo set. And I thought, man, I wish I had that. And then I came home, I walked in the door, and there's mum and dad, and there's my brothers and sisters. I walked in and I thought, oh, this is home. And you know what? I felt totally content. Mm. It became an awareness to me that I could think back and see the difference. Not that I don't need that stuff mm. to feel okay. Being home is what's okay. Mm. This is where I'm safe, surrounded by the wall city sort of thing. Yeah, so I thought I'd throw mm. that in mm. as a farewell. Yeah, because relationships are far more powerful than material things, aren't they? And yeah. you are at home not because of the material things, but because of that relationship you had at home. Yeah, that was it. It was the sense of contentment. I'm still learning what contentment actually means. It doesn't mean I've got enough goodies. It means I'm in a place where I feel safe and secure and surrounded by the right things, the right people, and the right kind of love and relational kind of interaction. And we never get complete contentment without having a relationship with God, do we? No, well, that's it. And that's why commandment number one is coming home. And we hit commandment number one and we're home with God. We're basically asked to come and sit at the table with him. That's the communion table. Father, Son, Holy Spirit and X. Mm. Well, you don't want to break that table. <laughs> no. But that would be okay, Scott, because one of them is a carpenter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks, Paul. Okay. Good one, Scott. See you later. See ya. See ya.